God, we come this morning and we humble ourselves under your mighty hand and ask that you would lead us and guide us and direct us in all our thoughts and all of our actions. We look to you and to you alone, even on Tuesday, God. Our country will go through an election and many things will change. We pray, God, more than anything that we would have peace and peace with you. And we as the church would bring peace. There's been no other election that has divided the church more so than this one. And God, this world needs peace. It needs hope. And you tell us in your word that your church is the hope of the world. And if we the church are the hope of the world, we must be united. We cannot be divided if we are to bring hope to this lost, lost world. So we ask and we plead with you for that this morning. And now, God, we come to you and we humble ourselves again under your word, your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word, that it would lead us and guide us in all the things that we do, say, and think. Have your way in us today. Allow none of us to come and leave the same. May we leave more sanctified than we came in this morning. I pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. If you do have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 34. I'll kind of recap where we've been and where we're headed this morning. We're right in the middle of Genesis, the, the book, the, the book of origins. This is where we as Christians get all that we hold to be true about uh, God and about Jesus and, and about where we come from. And we've been journeying through uh, the, the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're in the middle of Jacob's story. And, and all the stories, if you read the book of Genesis, it's this roller coaster of events. There's these high highs that these men of God are really walking in sync with God. And then in the very next verse, maybe the next few verses, there's low lows of these Guys that have walked with the Lord now are experiencing tremendous failure. For me, that gives me great promise that even the patriarchs, even who we hold to be uh, esteem in our faith, had failure. There was only one perfect man. That's Christ Jesus. And so that gives us hope that we don't have to be perfect to be in relationship with God. That Jesus did that for us. And so here we are in the middle of Jacob's story. Remember, Jacob had deceived his father, deceived his older brother, taken the blessing and the birthright from both of them. And then uh, his mother, Rachel, sent him off uh, into uh, a foreign land to live with Laban, his uncle, to be safe because Esau wanted to kill Jacob. And so for 20 years, Jacob was in that foreign land. And then a couple weeks ago, we, we saw that God had called Jacob back to go back to the promised land where God was going to multiply him and to bless him and to make the, the nations be blessed by him. And that that God through the line of Jacob would eventually bring Christ Jesus to us. And so last week we looked that Jacob had wrestled with God and in wrestling with God, he prevailed with God and God changed his name. And last week we saw that he begins to go back to where God had called him. But we also saw that where God called him was to Bethel, but he stopped about 20 miles shy of where God had called him. And I said that partial obedience is always disobedient. And partial obedience that leads to disobedience robs us from the blessings of God. And we're going to see here that this moment in time where his disobedience 
led him and his family. Tragedy strikes Jacob yet again because of Jacob's disobedience. He thought he got away with something until he didn't. How many of us can identify with that? Things are going well in our partial obedience, total disobedience, that things seem to be working out well for us. Things were working out well for Jacob living in the land that God had not told him to go until this faithful day. It's a story of great tragedy. This is the oldest daughter gets raped. And then we see the destruction that comes out of that. I want to this morning to look at the five main characters in this story. Dinah, Shechem, Hamar, Jacob, and the sons of Jacob. So let's first look at Dinah, the the daughter. This was the oldest daughter of Jacob. We know that Jacob had 11 sons first, and then this daughter comes along. You can see that in the previous chapters. You'll see that in the chapters to come. So here's Jacob's first daughter. But remember we had talked about that Jacob played favorites. And this daughter was born to Leah who was the least loved of all of Jacob's wives. And so all of a sudden we see favoritism strike again. She's most likely 14 to 15 years old at this time. Uh, At that time, 14 to 15 year old girls were not allowed out of the, the house without a chaperone, without someone watching over them. It was to preserve them, to get them ready for marriage. But as you could imagine, any teenage girl that lives with 11 brothers, it was time to get out of the house. I couldn't imagine that. A little 13, 14, 15-year-old girl grows up in a home of 11 brothers. And so it says in the very first verse, she went out to see the other women in the land. It was time to like make friends. If you have a daughter, that's what they just love to do. They love to, to get out. Like boys, they love to go play. Girls love to go talk. So she's trying to get out of the tent to go be with her friends, to meet new friends because she's tired of being surrounded by boys. But because Jacob played favorites, Jacob didn't watch over her the way that God had called him to watch over her. And because he didn't watch over her and he played favorites, he sent her in to danger. I wonder how many of us as parents do the same thing in different ways. We don't watch over our kids and we send them into danger. Well, here's the danger that occurs. The unthinkable happens. She's with the other women in the town and here comes this scoundrel of a man that shows up. Shechem. The next man in the story. It says that Shechem is the prince So his dad is the king, Hamar, of the town. And it says he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Those are three progressive, destructive, harmful words. It says he saw her, he seized her, he lay with her, he humiliated her. It gets bad, goes from bad to worse. But what we see in the life of Shechem is this, that he had desires. We all have desires. It wasn't that his desires were wrong. He saw this young lady. She was 
beautiful, so he had this desire to go be with her. Fellas, you're here next to your wife because you had this desire. You looked at her with, with eyes of beauty, correct? But it's what we do with our desires that becomes the problem. It's not that desires in and of themselves are bad. God gives us desires, does He not? But it's what we do with what God gives us and those desires that lead to destruction. This is what it says in God's Word. Psalm 37, 4 says this. God will give us the desires of our heart. And we know that part of the verse well. So God gives us our desires. So here's these desires that Shechem had. His desire was to be married. You see that in the next few verses. He wanted to be with her. It's just what he did in the moment. He let his desires burn with passion in his heart that were uncontrollable. And so many of us, we have desires, but we do not do what the first half of the verse in Psalm says. It does say that He will give us the desires of our heart. But the first part of the verse in Psalm 37 says this, we must delight ourselves in the Lord. See, it's in delighting of the Lord that our passions and our desires change. Or it's in the delighting of the Lord that we come under God's surrender and submission to our desires. And we can see clearly that Shechem did not delight himself in the Lord. He delighted himself in his own passions. So much so that he took her, he seized her, he lay with her, and he humiliated her. And so what were we as believers to do to delight ourselves in the Lord? I would submit this to you this morning. One of the ways that we can delight ourselves in the Lord is to delight ourselves in the Lord's Word. Let the Word of God become our delight. It's what Paul says. If we are to delight ourselves in the Lord, if we are to delight ourselves in the Lord, then when we delight in the Lord and we delight in His Word, then this will happen in our lives. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if these are, are anything as excellence, if any of this is praiseworthy, think of these things. You see, when we delight ourselves in the Lord and we delight ourselves in God's Word, God's Word transforms our minds, which then will transform our desires. They will become pure desires. My prayer is for both Tennyson and Cedar is this, that one day, yes, a young man will come and delight in Tennyson. And he'll have a passion to be with Tennyson. But it will be fueled by his desire and his passion for the Lord first. Because if not, she'll just become an object to his desires. My prayer is the same for Cedar, just the flip side. My prayer is that he would delight himself in the Lord. And in delighting himself in the Lord, that he'll look onto a woman with desire and passion, but it will be with purity because he's delighted himself in the Lord. My greatest fear is this, that we want our desires of our heart, but we're not willing to do the work to allow God to bring transformation to our desires. And when we do not allow and submit ourselves to the Lord and our desires, they will burn and wreak havoc in our lives. And that's what John says in his Gospel. Is it not that you have fights and quarrels among you because of your passions and your desires? Is what he says. 
It's because we have not submitted ourselves under God's rule and God's word to change and transform and protect our desires. And so this morning for you, this morning for me, are we delighting in the Lord to allow his delight and our delight in him to hold our desires in a godly way? The next one is this, Hamar, the father of Shechem, the, the king of the land. He, he was a, a, a wicked, cruel man, a very mischievous man, a, a very shrewd man. We see that in the text. We gain insight because of this. We, we know later on in the passage that Shechem had brought Dinah home with him. So here's this girl one day out in the, in the street corners, and then the next evening, this young 13, 14, 15-year-old girl is now present in the home. Now that as a dad ought to raise a lot of questions, correct? So there had to be some conversation between Hamar and Shechem about what had happened. We, we know somehow the story gets all the way back to Jacob. Jacob hears that his daughter had been defiled, so we can assume that this man, the king, had heard of what had happened. Does not bad news travel fast? And good news travels slow? So here we see the king of the city, the king of the land, hearing what his son had done. And look what his response is. What a shrewd man. It says this, but Jacob heard what had happened and defiled his daughter, but his sons were still in the field. And so Jacob held his peace. And Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. In that one verse, we see one thing. There's no discipline that happens to Shechem. He doesn't address his son with what the wickedness he did. He doesn't try to talk to him to see what's going on in the boy's life that would lead him to this place of utter wickedness. He devises a plan in his head to fix it all. And his way to fix it is to manipulate Jacob into marriage. If I can manipulate this man, give him all that he wants and desires, then he'll give me what my son wants. See, he, the dad, is more concerned about his son desires than he is about disciplining his son. How many of us have ever fallen into that mistake? I know I have. There's no rebuke. There's no discipline that we see. We, we know later on in the text, is, this is true. He was doing this to trick Jacob. It says that, hey, let us take their daughters for ourselves. This is in verse 21 and 22. Let us take all of theirs. We'll tell them this is what we're going to do, but we're really going to do this. He was a wicked Wicked man that did not discipline his son. I believe this is one of the major issues in our country. The lack of discipline. And because there's no discipline, there's no guidance. And without guidance, we will run amok. We need to discipline our children. What we've fallen into this trap that we think discipline is bad. No, punishment is bad. Discipline is of the Lord. 
You see, punishment is harmful. Discipline is righteous and good. But we're so afraid to discipline our kids. This is what's crazy, really. Kids have more power than parents now. Like before, when I was growing up, if I, if I had said to my mom, hey, you hit me again, I'm calling the police, she, she would have said, go ahead. Now you say that to them, the police are going to come and take away the parent. You see, kids have gained all the power and all the control because there's been a lack of discipline. We see that here in this story. But here's what God's Word says about discipline and how we need discipline. Proverbs 13.34 says this, Whoever spares the rod hates the child, but who loves him diligently will discipline him. Thank God He's a good God that brings great discipline. Could you imagine if God did not discipline His people? We'd be even more in a pit of hell than we already are. But this is what Hebrews 12.6 says. For the, lo- the Lord disciplines the ones He loves. Thank God for His discipline because His discipline shows just how much He loves us. Discipline shows love. Now again, you may have grown up in a home that mixed discipline with punishment. Punishment is abusive. Punishment is harmful. Punishment is done out of rage. Discipline is done out of love and kindness and correction. Punishment is done on a whim with no control. So we grow up and we have a difference between punishment and discipline. God says we ought not to punish people, but we are to discipline. He disciplines us. The next character that we see is Jacob himself. I believe two things about Jacob are true here. Jacob is super passive. We see that in the text. Now Jacob had heard that he had defiled his daughter, but his sons were in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. I don't know about you, but if you're a dad, if you hear your daughter got raped, are you going to sit and wait to do something? If you hear of harm that came to your child, are you going to sit idly by waiting? No, you will respond if you love your child. But he's so passive. Again, it plays right into his favoritism. He's basically saying, "Mm, that's her. So we see that Jacob is super, super passive. We don't see Jacob speak up into the text until the very end of the text, if you'll turn there. No words from Jacob at all until verse 30. And let's see where Jacob picks up in the story and says something. It says this in verse 30. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, those are the two brothers that I'm going to get to here in a second, that destroyed the city. You have brought trouble on me by making me stink and the inhabitants of the land and the Canaanites and the Presidites. My number are few. And if they gather against themselves against me and attack me, 
I shall be destroyed. So not only is he passive, but look who he's trying to protect. Himself. He's more concerned about him than he has his own family. He's super passive. Where did he get his passivity from, you may ask? I believe it started with Adam in the garden. Remember Adam in the garden we studied this months ago. That Adam was a passive man. If Adam had have just spoken up and said something to Eve as she was being manipulated and tricked by the serpent, by the tree, we would not be in the mess we were are in. But it's because of his passivity not to speak into things that we're where we're at. Men, we ought not to be passive. Jacob is a passive man. And in his passivity, he only wants to protect himself. You see that back in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. In the moment that God intervenes and says something, what does Adam do? He didn't take ownership for it. He blames Eve. That's uh, the woman's fault. And then he blames God. Not only is it the woman's fault that I did this, but it's your fault to get, that gave me the woman that made me do it. How often do we men, and I'm talking to the men, not the females in the room, because of our passivity have brought great harm to people. And it's because we want to protect ourselves more than those that God has given to us. The last people in the story are the brothers or the sons. Remember that this is the daughter of Leah. Leah had six sons. So this daughter would have had six older brothers and five half-brothers. Now when you read the text, it's like, thank God that someone finally stood up on behalf of this girl that had just been raped. Thank God they're angry about it. And it says that. They, they came home. They heard what had happened. They watched their father be passive. Watched their father play favoritism. And then they, they, they said, hey, this ought not to be. And they get angry. And thank God for their anger. But in that moment, it goes awry. In their anger, they don't sit and seek God. They respond in their anger. They become reactive rather than responsive. The reaction grows and grows and grows. And then they become and begin to play tricks against the ones that they're going to go attack. They, they had no desire ever to let themselves be married to these people. These were a pagan people. They would have known not to intermarry with them. But they devised this plan in their anger, in their rage, to circumcise all the men. So that they would not really marry them, that they would have a chance to kill them all. So they listened to this conversation that goes back and forth for their sister all the while letting their anger fester and fester and fester and fester. So they take things into their own hands. And it says on the third day when the men were still sore. I mean, what a cruel, cruel thing to do to begin with. And what ignorance for these men to agree to it. Hey, I got a good idea. Let's get married to these ladies, but the only way to get married to them is to be circumcised. Now, don't sign me up for that one. 
But they're so consumed by their passions that they'll do anything for these women. And they bite it hook, line, and sinker. So of course they were sore on the third day. They were unable to fight. They were unable to protect their city. That's where Simeon and Levi turn in and kill everyone. Could you imagine the bloodbath that day? What started off just a few days before with this girl that had been raped. And now, a few days later, the entire city is full of blood. Now again, thank God for their anger. But their anger, undealt with, led to disaster. This is what God's Word says about anger in Ephesians chapter 4. Anger is not a bad thing. It says, be angry, but do not sin. And they sin. The moment they sin was the moment. Not, not that they killed everyone. The moment they sin was that when they devised the plan to circumcise everyone. Remember what circumcision was. It was a distinct mark on the male body to show a covenantal relationship between God and His people. So they take the holy things and they destroy them by making them something they were never meant to be made into. Circumcision was an act given by God to man to show relationship. And now these two wicked brothers take the things of God and twist the things of God to get their way. How many of us have ever done that? It looks this way. How many times have we said God has told me to do something that goes counter to what God has said in His Word? I can't tell you how many times over and over and over I've heard people say, this is what God told me. And I said, show me in Scripture where God says that. It's nowhere to be found. So we take the things of God, twist the things of God to make them match what we want to do. That's taking the holy things of God and disgracing the things of God. So, Simeon and Levi go and they kill everyone. But now look at the rest of the brothers, what they do. They let the two older brothers go in and wreak havoc on the city, and then the rest of the brothers come in and plunder everything. I believe this is true because of these two things. They had a passive dad, that didn't correct them. Later on in the text, when there's a chance of rebuke, we see that Jacob doesn't rebuke them. He is more concerned about himself than he is disciplining them in the moment. I think the next thing that we see is these men in two different ways. The, the two brothers that wreak havoc, they have anger that is explosive. It's like a fire out of control. But I think we see in the other brothers an anger that's passive or it's a slow-burning anger. Both are harmful and destructive. And so we come to the end of the passage. And the end of the passage, it doesn't end favorably for anybody. If you notice, there's not one mention of God throughout the whole text. His name is not mentioned. 
This is the first chapter in a long time that God's name is never mentioned. How the, it, the chapter ends is this. But they said, should, we treat, should they treat our sister like a prostitute? So where does this bring us hope today? The hope comes in looking at Christ who came to fulfill all that these men were unable to do. Shechem had the desires of his heart unchecked. But with Christ, we have checked passions and desires. Without Christ Jesus, we will never discipline our kids because we have no model to show us. But in God, we have a model that brings healthy discipline. With Jacob, again, we see a passive man, but with God, we no longer have to be passive, but we can be active because we can trust that God is for us. Therefore, we don't have to protect ourselves and be passive and blame shift. And last, we can see these brothers that had great anger that went out of control. With God, we can submit to Him that allows us to have passions and anger and desires that are pointed in the right direction. It's only when we submit to Christ Jesus. You see, because Christ did all those things without sin. He leads us. He guides us. He disciplines us. He corrects us. And He loves us. And you know how He does it? Out of His righteous anger. And so for us this morning as we close, my prayer for us would be this. Would we submit our whole lives under the Lordship of Christ Jesus to be both our Lord and our Savior this morning? Let me pray. God, You are kind to us. We're grateful for Your discipline to us. I pray that we would see You as the great Healer, the great Redeemer, and the Mighty One, Lord Jesus who makes all things possible for us. We want to again humble ourselves under Your mighty hand, that You would have Your way in our lives to lead us, to guide us, and to uphold us. You are a good and kind God. We pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. If you'd please rise for the benediction this morning. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might repay? From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace be with you. Just as a quick reminder, we do have a business meeting this coming Wednesday. Grace and peace to you. I'll see you Wednesday.